Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, and this is the Bulldog Diaries series of Horsepower to Hyperloops, in which we relate short but interesting vignettes from GMI's and Kettering's history. Many people don't realize that in its beginnings as the School of Automotive Trades in the 1920s, Kettering was not a degree-granting institution. In fact, for two decades, the school's first president, Major Al Sobey, was adamant that degrees would be an unwanted distraction. This, therefore, is the story of how, during World War II, that position became untenable, and also how, over subsequent years, a Kettering degree has evolved into a unique and extremely valuable piece of parchment. Now, Kettering and GMI have, of course, been granting degrees for decades. But some people may not be aware that that wasn't always the case. The original institution, the School of Automotive Trades, was founded in 1919 by local industrial executives not to grant degrees, but to provide training for Flint's rapidly growing industrial workforce. Most of the school's students were already working in factories at the time, and thus only interested in further job training, not diplomas. When the Flint Institute of Technology, as the school had come to be called, was bought by General Motors in 1926, training remained the priority. At the same time, the new charter from the state of Michigan included provisions for the granting of both undergraduate and graduate degrees, should GMI wish to pursue that route. Major Sobey, most assuredly, did not. He was very wary of degrees because he felt that they were inconsistent with and could even undermine GMI's focus on pure technical training. Degrees could be a hindrance to GMI's mission, he argued, because they often came with what he termed arbitrary requirements that were likely to compromise, in his words, the advantages of the freedom of action we had in the development of our pioneering program. Now, anyone who's earned a degree must certainly understand his point. I absolutely do. Is there any doubt that arbitrary requirements, in other words, a required course or two in which someone has no interest but must take in order to satisfy the requirements for his or her degree, have been the subject of decades of endless bitching over beers at BJ's and a thousand other college hangouts across the country. Now, the major did concede in the mid-20s that degrees might have some value, again, in his words, not for the completion of the four-year course, but for the completion of five years, four years in cooperative training and one year in full-time industrial experience after the four years were over. But training, he kept saying, should remain the highest of GMI's priorities. Now, Alfred Sloan and Charles Kettering supported him, calling training a vital necessity in an increasingly complex industrial world. Ultimately, the entire board issued a statement saying that the objective of the new GMI would be a preparation for work and the development of the future leadership at General Motors. In other words, hands-on training. But taking advantage of the charter, the board also left the door open. The board gave me the power, wrote Sobey, to proceed with plans for granting degrees for the successful completion of the cooperative engineering program. And indeed, at the first graduation under the GMI banner in 1928, 
GMI granted its first four-year diplomas to graduates of the Cooperative Engineering Program, as Sobe had suggested. The school would continue this practice in subsequent years. Keep in mind, though, that the students earning these degrees represented a very small part of GMI's program at the time. Major Sobe continued to vigorously resist the granting of degrees to anyone beyond this tiny percentage of students. For the next 25 years, therefore, the vast majority of GMI students still completed their studies without any sort of degree. And that was fine for the time being because the signature issue for the next decade would not be degrees, but simply surviving the ravages of the Depression, which began suddenly about 16 months after that first GMI graduation in June of 1928. To be honest, the major did not have the luxury to think beyond the Depression. And like the rest of us, he certainly did not own a crystal ball. So he can therefore be forgiven for not seeing 20 years into the future when international events would make academic degrees absolutely critical for GMI grads' employment and military service. It was, of course, World War II that changed everything. Once the U.S. entered the war in 1942 after Pearl Harbor, the armed services' need for officers naturally skyrocketed. One of the basic requirements for those who wished to become officers by entering the various enlisted reserve programs was a college degree from an accredited institution. Because the vast majority of GMI graduates did not have a degree, and because as a training school, GMI had never seen the need to pursue accreditation, GMI was not, wrote Major Sobey, included in the list of accredited institutions prepared by the United States Office of Education as being eligible for the Army's College Enlisted Reserve Program. Now, in retrospect, this was largely an issue of trying to teach an old dog new tricks. The old school armed services were simply unfamiliar with, and in the midst of a world war uninterested in taking the time to discover, the value of the innovative idea at the core of GMI, cooperative education. Instead, the military remained rigidly traditional in its absolute insistence on college degrees, regardless of the quality of the institution granting them. Thus, because non-degreed students were considered unqualified for the enlisted reserve programs, GMI grads wishing to enter them were required to attend other schools that would provide them the degrees GMI had not and that the military said they needed. In addition, GMI graduates in the service who did not enter via the enlisted reserve programs found the lack of a degree an obstacle when applying for their military commissions. Now, Major Sobe knew that GMI students were more qualified than many, if not most, college graduates and that the military's bias against GMI grads was simply a matter of ignorance. He therefore began to lobby the various administrations of the armed services on behalf of his unaccredited school and its undegreed graduates. It was not the major, however, but rather GMI's earliest wartime graduates themselves who helped ameliorate the problem simply by virtue of their excellent performances at the other schools they were required to attend. When both Harvard and MIT waived application requirements for GMI grads because the students from GMI had all done so well, Sobe redoubled his lobbying efforts with the military pleading GMI's case without let-up. Those efforts, combined with the implicit imprimatur of Harvard and MIT, began to eat away at the military bias against GMI.
Finally, a high-ranking naval officer accepted Major Sobey's standing invitation of a three-day visit to the campus in Flint to see GMI firsthand. Upon the officer's return to Washington, he wrote Major Sobey how impressed he was with GMI's program and that despite the school not granting degrees or being accredited, GMI had been provided eligibility for the Navy's enlisted reserve program. The Navy, in essence, had created a waiver for GMI grads on the basis of their proven academic and technical abilities. The dam had broken. Major Sobey then pursued and received the same type of waiver from the other branches of the armed services. The Army was the last branch in November of 1942 to come on board. When a senior official wrote GMI, I'm pleased to inform you that the Institute's cooperative students are now eligible for the enlistment in the Enlisted Reserve Corps of all branches of the armed services. The deal was done. As the war wound down, this entire dust-up over pieces of parchment demonstrated that the time had come for GMI to begin granting degrees across the board. Shortly after the war, Major Sobey proposed, consistent with his thinking of almost two decades before, a degree to be awarded upon successful completion of the cooperative education program, followed by a fifth year of full-time industrial experience. The proposal was approved, and in August of 1946, 18 men who had completed the five-year program received either a Bachelor of Industrial or Mechanical Engineering degree. From that point forward, more and more GMI students would receive academic degrees, and it would, of course, eventually become the norm. Now, recently, many of you have shared with me the extraordinary value of the cooperative aspect of your GMI carrying education, reinforcing Major Sobey's original premise about the value of practical, hands-on training. But the degree has, of course, come to mean a great deal as well. I doubt whether anyone in the early years would imagine that at its centennial, a GMI, now Kettering, degree would lead to so many other advanced degrees, masters and PhDs, or serve as the foundation for the careers of what is today over a thousand C-level executives at major corporations. Who could have ever envisioned that a Kettering University degree would, according to Payscale.com, translate immediately upon graduation into the highest starting salary, not to mention salary potential, of any university in Michigan? Or that CNN would rank Kettering 10th among all private universities and colleges in the entire nation in starting salary and salary potential? Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.